Hey everyone, welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by Data Talks Club, which is a community of people who love data. We have weekly events, and today is one of such events. If you want to find out more about the events we have, there is a link in the description. Click on that link, check it out, you'll see. Right now we don't have much, but there is one interesting workshop that is happening in September. Then uh, do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. This way you will not miss future streams as awesome as the one we are going to have today. And lastly, we have an amazing Slack community where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. This week, we'll talk about causality. And we have a special guest today, Alexander. Alexander is a machine learning researcher, educator, and consultant. He has worked with many companies across Europe, the United States of America, Israel, where he designed and built large-scale machine learning systems. He's also known as the author of Causal Inference and Discovery in Python. And this is one of the topic of today's interview. Welcome to the show, Alexander. Welcome, Alexei. Thank you for having me and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, you're more than welcome. As usual, the questions for today's interview are prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks, Johanna, for your help. Before we go into our main topic of causality, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure. So I started with my journey with computers when I was a kid. I was like five, six, seven years old. I was doing a little bit of programming because my father was a programmer back then. Then I had a very, very long break. And after doing my second degree, that was psychology and social psychology, experimental psychology with neuroscience and so on, I fell in love with statistics and Googling into statistics because I was very interested in this topic and also Googling about what is going on in computer science. At this stage, I learned about Python. This led me to machine learning. And that was the start of my journey into this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And one of my first machine learning projects was a scientific one. We worked on predicting pre-diagnostic predictors of dyslexia in children. And uh, I was very excited about this project. And actually now, after many, many years, there's a tool being developed that will help people diagnose the risk of dyslexia in, in very young children, which is very important because early diagnosis can help those children start specialized training that can help them overcome the difficulties in their adult life. And from there, I, I started working um, with, a, with an international consulting company called Lingaro. And uh, that was a, a place where I started developing many more complex architectures for global clients, working with NLP and other models. Yeah, so that was the beginning. Then I worked for other companies. Uh, then I, I moved to Tel Aviv and I worked with a cybersecurity company. And then recently I finished uh, writing my book and moved to doing consulting for companies and focusing on my educator and global advocacy work. Do you remember as a kid, uh, what exactly picked your interest in programming? Because I, I have a kid, he's seven years old, and I tried to, uh, to show him what you can do with an algorithm. So we, we bought a robot ah. and it's possible to program a robot, right? So you can, like, there's like this visual interface and you can tell the robot, like, first, like, do three steps forward, then like rotate, and then you can create loops there. So like, it can rotate like 10 times or something like that. And he was not impressed at all after I showed him that. So oh, I like how, how to show him that programming is cool. Do you remember how it happened to you? I don't know if how relevant this will be for you and for him or for her. I don't know. Um, 
for me, you know, I didn't have a robot back then. I just have uh, a monochrome display PC 186 or 286 or something like this with, uh, with GW Basic. And I, you know, I wrote myself a piano, you know, that I could play melodies using computer keyboards. And that was my main achievement back then. That's amazing. I have no idea what these terms that you mentioned mean, because I myself got a computer pretty late, lately. But anyways, yeah, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for sharing yeah. that. So I guess not every kid uh, should be immediately impressed when they see like uh, an algorithm, a robot that could be programmed. Perhaps, you know, everyone is different, so. Yeah, right. So now you focus on education and did you call yourself a causality ambassador? Yeah, that's one way to think about what I'm doing. So what, what, what does it mean? What do you do as a causality ambassador? So I, I do a couple of things. I, I do my best to democratize the set of methods and the style of thinking. I, I think both things are very important here. I have a feeling that causality in general is a tool or a set of tools that can be very, very helpful for individuals and businesses alike. And this is just something that, for this reason or another, we haven't learned in our curricula, right? So many people were not lucky enough to just get these ideas uh, passed to them from the teachers, uh, from the environment, and so on and so on. And I, I believe that everyone deserves to understand how it works and to have a chance to apply this to their work. You said your goal is to democratize this style of thinking. So what exactly this style of thinking is? Like, what is causality? Why it's, how is it different from like the usual style of thinking? Mm -hmm. Well, so usual style of thinking, I don't know. Uh, it, it probably depends where you were growing up and what circumstances, what context and so on. But uh, thinking about the data science community, most people are going into a journey that is focused around traditional statistical machine learning which means that we look at associations. And um, seeing associations is great. It gives us great opportunities in, in many different contexts. But sometimes it also comes with a set of risks, which means that we can see an association and this association might be there because of another variable that we do not observe. And for whatever reason, we can think about this association as a valid tool to make a conclusion that is either explicitly causal. Did you have an example, maybe? It's a bit abstract. Yeah, sure. Let me make it more concrete. So I was just uh, going back from my lunch and I was uh, seeing YouTube shots. You know, this like this. Yeah, I know. They're addictive. Yeah, Instagram-like kind of short movies. And there was one where there was a guy speaking and trying to convince the audience that there's a correlation between the color of your skin and the likelihood that you will commit violent crimes. And he was citing different types of, of statistics for this, right? And so this is um, an example of associative thinking. So we, maybe we say like, hey, there are people with certain properties, right? I don't know, physical, mental properties, uh, psychological properties, and there are some outcomes. And we think that these outcomes are more frequent for, I don't know, one group versus another. And then if we just talk this associational language and we talk about those associations, here's one, here's another one, here's another one. It's very easy to make people start thinking that this property of this group of people is linked to this outcome. 
right? While sometimes it might be something completely different. So maybe people with this certain property, physical or psychological, are also, for whatever, let's say, historical reason, in a group of people who have much lower income. And maybe they have less parenting skills on average, right? Within certain geography or certain location. And this might be also related to the fact that there is more violent crime in this uh, particular neighborhood or for a group of people that accidentally also have another characteristic, right? But if we don't look at this third variable, we might start implicitly thinking that those two properties that we are observing are related. And we also usually say related, but what we think is related causally, right? So there is something that is causing the other thing. So from purely associative point of view or correlational point of view, we often cannot distinguish which type of situation we are in, right? So we might see an association with temperature and I don't know, there's an example in my book. It's, it's a very simple example, but perhaps an intuitive one. There are more drownings or drownings are correlated with ice cream sales, right? Mm-hmm. I can see where it's going, yeah. A scientist might hypothesize that hey, there is sugar in ice cream. And maybe people who eat ice cream, that are just a little bit, they become a little bit less, you know, slower to react and so on and so on. Sometimes we feel after we eat, we feel a little bit like, hey, maybe I'll have a nap, right? Especially if it's like carbohydrate-rich food. And somebody would, could make a hypothesis like this and invest like a large budget in exploring this hypothesis or trying to falsify it. Well, the cause, there is a common cause and it's temperature, right? So when it's warmer, people are more likely to buy ice cream, but they are also more likely to go and swim. And if more people are swimming, more people are also, unfortunately, drowning usually, right? I guess for, for some applications, we don't need to think about uh, this causality. We just see correlation. I know we train our logistic regression. I think maybe a good example is this uh, famous uh, B feature in the Boston dataset. It's also related to the skin of color, the example you mentioned. Yeah. I think it's like the proportion of colored people in the neighborhood in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. And then like if we train a model, maybe this model is accurate to some extent, right? Because like it uses this problematic B feature. So for some purposes, like we will not think if it's like uh, correct to use this feature or not, but maybe it improves the performance of the model, right? So that's a very uh, interesting point, uh, <laughs> what you're saying, because... Well, statistics is is just enough for predictive Mm -hmm. tasks. Now, the problem starts when we want to make a decision, right? So if you imagine there was a very famous case some time ago of a company called Zillow. So they were doing actually what you described. They were trying to predict prices of real estate. And then what they also did based on those predictions, they were deciding if they want to buy a real estate and then flip it, which means renovate it and sell for a better price or maybe even without renovation. I don't remember what was their business model or not. And now this turned out to be a very good business for them for a very long time, uh, as long as the distribution of all the variables in the background was the same, right? So machine learning models are IID machines, which means that they assume that we have the same identically independent and identically distributed data set in training and in the test or in the real world, right? And this is not always the case. 
Now, causal models depends on the type of a causal model might address this. If you have a lot of information, if you have a rich causal representation, you can address a situation like this. So if Zillow had a very rich causal model, they would not fall because of the fall of the market. What happened with them? Oh, they, they went bankrupt, essentially. Because of their machine learning models. Yeah, they bought a lot of real estate and then the prices went down and they were not able to mm -hmm. take it. Yeah. The models were predicting that the prices would go up, but they did not, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. As far as I remember, that was the case. And they made a decision based on this prediction. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, when we're making decision, let me give you another example. When we're making a decision, usually, not always, right? Sometimes we might have a decision threshold, maybe, like in credit risk, sometimes we have, right? Somebody says like, hey, if the probability of default is higher than something, we're just not giving money to those people. And this might be good enough, depending on what you really want to achieve in the long run, but this might be really good enough. But we can think about another scenario with, uh, let's say, marketing or churn, when in marketing, we are interested in targeting people who will respond favorably, which means they will purchase, right? If we target them, this will increase the likelihood of purchasing because targeting every person is spending a little bit of our marketing budget. But there are different people, right? And some people might just don't care if we target them and they will buy anywhere anyway. Some other people might not buy regardless if we target them or we don't target them. And there will be also some people that will buy only if we target them because maybe they just feel a little bit special when we send them their discount or we give them this personalized email, right? But there's also the fourth group of people who will buy from you as long as you do not target them. And if you target them, they get angry and they say like, hey, it's too much marketing, too much of this bullshit. I don't want this. Goodbye. And they just uh, stop working with you. So for this uh, problem, predicting the probability of the outcome is not enough, right? Because we might predict that there is like 60% probability that this person will convert, they will buy from us. But now we don't know if they will buy if we target them or if we don't target them, or maybe they will. their probability will drop actually if we target them. So for this, we need to model something that is called counterfactuals. We need to model how they behave under the campaign and under no campaign. And then by comparing these two outcomes, we can make a decision. Counterfactual. What does it exactly mean? Like in broader terms, counterfactual. Mm -hmm. It's a complex word. Yeah. So counterfactual. So factual means something that actually happens in the world. And counterfactual means something that is not happening in the world. So we change something. In the Perlian language, which means Perlian comes from Judea Perl, who is a computer scientist, who is the godfather or even a father of modern causality or graph-based causality. And in these terms, uh, this means that we perform in a minimal intervention, as they call it, in the world. So for instance, you have a red shirt today, a red t-shirt maybe. And now I'm picking certain examples when you ask me. And we could ask a question, would I pick different examples if you wore a blue shirt, right? Would that prime me somehow differently? And now if we have a very rich causal model, we could answer this question. This is not always very simple, but uh, at least theoretically it's possible. Mm -hmm. So, but we don't know what would happen if I wore a blue t-shirt, right? That's why it's counterfactual. We don't know what would yes. happen 
if and we will never observe it moreover right we, we will never observe you in the same you and me in the same situation and you wearing a blue t-shirt instead of a red mm -hmm. t-shirt mm -hmm. so the other example you gave earlier was uh, let's say we targeted somebody and we saw how they reacted to the advertisement but we don't know how they would have reacted had we not targeted them right yes or another example maybe could be let's say we have a recommender system and we show certain items right but there are other items we don't show maybe if we showed other items they would have clicked right but they did not because we didn't show them and we have no idea right what would have happened if we did that thing yes exactly that's an amazing example recommender systems it's the same yeah mm -hmm. it's the same structure as you noticed mm -hmm. yeah and uh, yeah so i guess our typical classical models like I don't know, logistic regression decision trees xgboost whatever neural network classical neural networks they do not really cover these cases right so we don't know like in this example in the example of targeting somebody all we know is how people reacted to a campaign right we don't know how people who weren't targeted how they would have reacted so what kind of models do we need to use to model this specific case that's a great question you are correct so out of the box supervised models do not have capabilities to reason causally and there are many different types of causal models but the one that i think is relatively the easiest to grasp and that also behind the scenes uses traditional machine learning models there's a family of models called meta learners the name is maybe a little bit unfortunate because we also have meta learners in in machine learning traditional non-causal machine learning like ensemble learners is it the same thing no i think it's slightly different but um anyway causal meta learners are called meta learners for a very particular reason because they took regular machine learning models and they used them to produce those counterfactual worlds of course they're estimated counterfactual worlds right and um probably the easiest example of a meta learner a very simple meta learner is called t learner t learner stands for two learner like one two and it's because it uses two machine learning models so it uses one machine learning model to learn the response function for under no treatment let's assume that the treatment is binary so we do something or we don't do it and the second model is used to learn the response function which means mapping from the treatment and maybe some features to the outcome it learns the response function under treatment so we have one model that learns response function under no treatment another one under the treatment so in this case uh, just want to make sure i understood yeah so we have two models so first model for the first model we see well, let's say if we talk about this uh campaign example when we targeted people when we target yeah. people with uh, an advertisement we have this pool of people who target our audience right we sent them some sort of campaign and we collect the data we know who opened the email or whatever who ended up clicking right and we know who did not do this right so we have this um data set right with the target variable but then we also have other people who we did not set the campaign and we can observe what they do on the platform right so we know that we did not send to this pool of people but they still might buy the thing we are advertising right so we just yes. take all the other people and see who actually bought this thing at the end right and then we have two models yeah so we take these two groups of people 
one that we sent the campaign to and the other one that were didn't not receive the campaign. And we trained one model on one group, another model on another group. Now, you also said about clicking emails and so on. So there is compliance, which means that if somebody clicked or not, it makes the thing a little bit more complex. So let's put it aside for now. And just let's focus on those two models. So we take those two models and then for any new observation, we make prediction for using both models. Okay, so so it only makes sense if we also have some features that are describing our our population. And then we for each individual, we make a prediction using the the treatment model and the non-treatment model. And we take the outcomes from both models and we subtract the outcome from the non-treated model from the treated model. And this gives us something, a quantity that is called a conditional average treatment effect. Now, this can be interpreted, this outcome can be interpreted as a conditional average treatment effect only under certain circumstances, which means that the original data that we trained the model on has to be unconfounded, which means that there is no causal bias in this data. And this might be accomplished in two ways, either by randomizing the treatment in the training data, which means that we basically perform an experiment. In the same way as a A-B test, right? Yes, yes. A well-conducted A-B test, well-designed A-B test. Or the second option is to perform causal feature selection, which might be a little bit more difficult because we need to observe all the variables that can have impact on the treatment and the outcome at the same time. And we need to exclude certain other variables that might have certain structural relation to other variables in the model. Mm-hmm. But basically, there are these two ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we do with the results? So we subtract one from the other, we get some quantity. So I guess there could be three possibilities, like negative, zero, and positive, right? Mm-hmm. So what do we do in each of these cases? Well, so it all depends on the setting, right? If we just say the outcome is binary, they either buy or they not buy. Mm-hmm. So negative, I understand it would be like if somebody would have bought unless we targeted him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to make a, an optimal decision from your budget allocation point of view, you should only treat people who would buy if targeted. That would be an optimal decision for you. So only if it's positive, right? Only if it's positive and if it would be negative otherwise, yeah. Okay, can I say it again? Yeah, so I think we had different understanding. So let me expand on this. We should only target people who are positive under the treatment model and are negative or like zero under non-treatment model, which if we apply this ATE formula, average treatment effect formula, that would be one minus zero, which means one. Their outcome is mm-hmm. one. So one model predicts, the treatment models predicts that uh, this person would buy. The non-treatment model predicts that this person would not buy. Yes. In this case, we go ahead and uh, target. In other cases, we do not. Yes. In other cases, we do not because people who would buy under no treatment and treatment, it doesn't make sense to target them because it doesn't make difference to them based on our estimation, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't target people who, who don't buy anyway because it seems it doesn't matter to them as well. And of course, we don't want to target people who who are buying under no treatment and stop buying under treatment, right? Because this is just generating a loss on both ends for us, like losing a client and also losing money to actually paying to lose a client. 
it's like paying tools a client yeah it's like the worst possible thing right yeah you spend money but you also lose the client yes exactly I imagine it can introduce some problems like let's say we take this model we deploy it we apply it to you all the, the entire population to all our customers and start using it and then we continue collecting data and then the data we collect might be well because we applied the model and try it now we we introduce some bias right by starting to apply this model should we maybe always do some sort of randomized test trial when we deploy this model or we, it's okay to go ahead and apply it to everyone well so this is a great question a short answer is that if you use a, a model like tlearner you might have certain problems right so for instance you can show that those simple meta learners they will have a little bit of estimation bias which is different from causal bias right so we assume that causally we are okay so our data was either randomized or or it was uh, structurally the variables was chosen in a causally meaningful way and then we still might have some estimation bias from those models so there are different models other models like double machine learning for instance uh, trying to remove this estimation bias from uh, from those models now just last week thing uh Lars van der Laan published another paper where he introduced a triple machine learning that uses another piece of statistical information let's say to debias the the model and he achieved something that is called a super efficient estimator which means that it converges to the true value much faster with the sample size than a traditional estimator and um yeah so this is one thing but i think what is more important is that sometimes it might be difficult for us to also get rid of this causal bias and in this sense if we are not sure that we were able to get rid of uh, the causal bias it would be definitely a good practice to before the ultimate deployment to deploy this model to a part of your or customer base if that's possible so this is something that i usually recommend to my clients that we deploy a model to a part of the customer base and we always compare it to the baseline whatever our baseline is right so a baseline might be just a simple machine learning predictive model just yeah mm -hmm. and this case compare means we compare using some sort of business metric like what's the revenue that these two groups uh, brought right yeah we basically evaluate the policy right so we can think about a causal model like this this is often called uplift modeling uplift because the change that whatever metric goes up when we use this causal modeling technique so yeah this is uh, evaluating based on whatever metric matters to us right this might be revenue this might be uh, churn this might be anything that would be relevant because there is a question from Taras so Taras is asking is how do we estimate the quality of a causal model mm -hmm. and if the metrics that we use are the same as for plane regression or plane like you know traditional ml models or the metrics are different mm -hmm. so let's unpack this question there are a couple of levels of evaluation of causal models so the first one is regarding causal unbiasedness or is there a causal bias in our data set there are no and here traditional machine learning metrics or traditional machine learning evaluation approaches like cross validation for instance are not really useful why because the observational distribution associational distribution 
we can get the same associational distribution from different interventional distributions or different counterfactual distributions, which means that we can have different data generating processes that end up giving us exactly the same observational distribution. So this is not very useful and we need other stuff to make sure that it works. So one of the ideas that we can use is actually what we just discussed. So deploying the model and looking how it works. Another way is using so-called refutation tests. So refutation tests are trying to falsify the causal structure within the model, which means these tests usually are changing something in the data, for instance, and they check if the, the causal coefficient that we are finding is also changing or not. So this is like a scientific method, preparing scientific methodology. We're trying to change something in the world and we say like, hey, if this model will react to this in a certain way, it means that it's almost certainly wrong. So those tests cannot confirm that the model is correct, but they can falsify the hypothesis that the model is correct. And then we have statistical estimates. And now the question from Taras was, if I remember correctly, if we use the same set of metrics for both, for both models. So yeah, we can do. If we want to evaluate the policy, which means if we make better decisions based on the causal model versus on the non-causal model, then we definitely should use the same metric, right? Because if we use different metrics, then, then we are not comparing apples to apples. And there's also a third dimension, which is the quality of the estimator itself. So assuming that the causal part is okay, we don't have any causal bias in the model, we might be also interested and we should be interested in seeing what is the quality of estimation of statistical parameters within the causal structure. And here, things like uh, cross-validation and all those traditional metrics can be helpful because now we assume that we split the data set into the training and test part. We assume that they are IID and we just want to see how well our estimators are estimating model parameters in the model based on the performance on the test set while the model was trained on the train set. So in my book, you will find a, a multiple examples of these procedures. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about your book because like to me, it sounded... Uh quite abstract in general metrics uh, like it's such a topic that uh, without examples and without um, for me personally illustrations and actually going there and trying to implement these things play with them like they are just too abstract and what you say is if somebody felt lost during this description or wants to know more about this wants to learn more about that they should check out your book right so there you describe it with more details all these things that you just talked about Yes, definitely. So in the book, we go from actually from almost from the scratch. We are starting, we talk about basic fundamental causal concepts, and then we move gradually step by step towards machine learning methods, heterogeneous treatment effect estimation, which is another name for uplift modeling, let's say plus or minus this terminology is maybe not always consistent. And then we also talk about another topic, which is called causal discovery when we are trying to discover causal structure within our data set from observational data or observational and interventional data. So from what I understood, so these causal models, they are pretty useful and we should use them when possible, when needed, but they introduce an extra layer of complexity, right? So right now 
let's say you have a traditional model, you have just one model. You deploy, you use it, and it seems to be working fine. Uh, but then if you start thinking about this causality and causal models, then in the simplest case, you at least have two models, right? And it becomes kind of two times more complex, like your, your system becomes two times more complex. Like, is it always worth it to introduce this complexity? Or maybe there are cases when we shouldn't worry about causality yet and postpone this to some later point. Great question and a very loaded question. So starting from, is it worth it? Answer to this question depends on what you are trying to achieve. If you're only interested in predicting something and you say, hey, this is an IID case and I just want to predict if this will be more than five or less than five, there's no need for causal models. Maybe Zillow was thinking in the exact same way, right? We're just predicting. We are not interested in, you know. Yeah, but they were making decisions, right? They were making actually counterfactual bets on reality based on single model prediction. But don't we always, in most cases, we have a model, a machine learning model, to make a decision, to act on this decision. Should we give money or we should not give money to like a prospective uh, client, right? Should we target uh, somebody or should we not target? Like in most cases, like logistic for like for classification, we want to have a decision, right? So should we put this email in spam or not spam? Mm -hmm. Or should we, I don't know, a recommender system, should we display it or should we not display it? Like in most of these cases, yeah, there is a decision. Yeah. Yeah. So always when there is a decision and you also have some treatment that is under your control, which means that you can change something in the world, there is a potential of benefit for you in using causal models. And now if it's worth, you ask me if it's worth it, right? And that's, I, I'm smiling because like just, I think two weeks ago, I got a message from my colleague and he told me, hey, you know, I just, at my company, I just started analyzing the machine learning model from the, the whole marketing in the company is working on, is based on, and I just discovered that for three years, we just have losses on our marketing, mm. right? And this is making decisions based on the machine learning model. And it works. Mm. It's easy because it's just one model, maybe, right? Probably they have more, but it's relatively easy. And everybody's happy. And then somebody comes and, and they do the math. And it seems that the marketing is actually, they are throwing the money away. And then he started analyzing this. So he sent me a screenshot of his like, hey, this is my causal model, how it works. What do you think about it, you know? So every time you have this kind of a problem, I think it's worth it to go into causal models. Now, there is a psychological block, I suppose, in some people because they think, hey, we have some status quo, it works. Like, I don't know maybe even how it works, but it seems it's okay. We are alive, right? We're moving forward. So maybe let's not touch it. But then it depends again on what are your goals? What are your long-term goals? If you really want to maximize your gains and, and minimize losses in the long run, maybe it's worth to just stop for a while and say, okay, let's see how it works. Let's see how much is the investment today and then what we can expect in the future. Okay. So we should think, right? <laughs> and I, I think one of the things you mentioned previously is when we deploy a causal model, Typically, there is a baseline, right? It's always a good idea to compare this causal model to the baseline, right? 
So th this is like a data-driven way to see if this adding uh, one extra layer of complexity is actually worth it, right? Definitely. I think even if you feel internally convinced that your data is causally unbiased, I would always recommend this because sometimes we just cannot think about something. There's maybe a little thing we missed. So I, I think it's always an incremental work, really, to you know make things better and so on. But I think this is, you know, this is the same as in life and in business. Yeah. And uh, there is one quite hot topic these days, these LLMs, right? So everyone mm. is talking about LLMs, large language models. We actually, we were in our podcast, we were pretty late to the party. But recently, we had two podcast interviews that were about LLMs, so better late than never. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess LLMs are kind of hot because of ChatGPT. At least this is when I noticed them. So before, when it was just GPT-3, it was like, okay, so what? But when I saw ChatGPT, it like completely changed my perception of yeah. what these models could do. And you recently gave a talk. I don't know how recently, but you did at some point give a talk about causality and NLP, and you tested uh, LLMs with uh, causal questions. Can you tell us more about uh, this talk? Can you summarize it for us? Yeah, sure. So since this talk, a lot has changed in the research community and also in the LLM space, something has changed. So, so I will give you a summary of the talk and then also a short summary of where we are today. In the talk, we discuss the idea of combining natural language processing with causality, in particular, large language models with causality. And... There are a couple of ways that you can think about the, this intersection of those two areas. One is about using large language models as elements of a causal system, perhaps as some kind of a feature extractor in the role of, a, of feature extractors. Can you give an example? It's a bit, uh, like to me, it's a bit abstract. Yeah. Okay, so let's think about a more concrete example. Maybe we have a situation that we have a program that aims to help people write more clearly. Okay, so so there's a I don't, maybe a two maybe a one week or two week workshop. People are sitting, writing, you know, learning how to write more clearly and so on and so on. Without uh, LLMs, just a workshop. Yeah, like just people. Teacher, just a workshop. Yeah, just people. Right. So they yeah. learn, and then as the outcome of this workshop, they walk out knowing how to create a better copy, create a better article. Yes. And now we might be interested in evaluating if this workshop worked. So if they are writing more clearly, really. And if you want to do it at scale, it's challenging to engage, to hire many people that will do the evaluation for us because they will need to read many pages of text and so on and so on. So we could potentially use here an LLM, a large language model, and ask it if for the clarity score for those essays, right? And then we could say, if we randomized the treatment, so some people got to the workshop and others did not based on a random assignment, we could basically compute the average treatment effect. So that's one way. This scenario is called sometimes uh, the text as an outcome because the text is the outcome of some experiment. And also maybe text as a um, mediator, which means that we have some treatment, then there's a text produced and caused by this treatment or some aspects of this text are caused by this treatment and then we have some other outcome mm -hmm. so is understood correctly so there are two groups of people one is that kind of the treatment group people who went through the workshop 
the other group is people who did not go through the workshop. Mm -hmm. And then each person in these two groups produces some text. And then for each of the texts, we ask an LLM, hey, what's the clarity score? Or yes. like how to ease this text? And then we just compare like using some sort of t-test or whatever to see that the okay, workshop actually was helpful, right? Yes, exactly. That would be an example of the scenario that is called text as, as an outcome. Mm -hmm. Because text is the outcome that where we expect some difference. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what's wrong with that? Yeah, this is a good approach. So so now we are talking about a scenario where we are using LLMs as an element, as a decoder or encoder within a system that we know that the system is causal. We know the causal structure of the system. And then the LLM is just like one of the elements within the system that helps us turn this multidimensional entity that a text is into a some maybe numerical summary. Mm -hmm. We can also use it in another way. So maybe text is a confounder, which means that we have some treatment and we have some outcome and some aspect of the text is affecting both the treatment and the outcome. And this is interesting because sometimes it's difficult to actually say, hey, this is one thing in the text that is influencing something and how we extract this information. Maybe it's style, right? So it's very difficult to quantify style. And large language models can be helpful with this. Mm -hmm. So let me give you another example with te text as treatment. So maybe we have a copy. You mean text as co-founder or the treatment? It will be text as treatment. We, I think it will be just easier to. It's the same as previously, right? No, it, so previously it was text as outcome. Text as outcome. Okay. Outcome. And now it's text as treatment. So maybe we have a marketing copy and we have a bunch of people receiving this copy. Mm -hmm. And there's another version of this copy. And another bunch of people is receiving this copy. And then we want to compare if, I don't know, they bought or they subscribed for Data Talks Club, right? And maybe the copies are, are different. They have the same semantics, right? They are talking about the same stuff, but they have just different style. Mm -hmm. And maybe just one is just like more. I think of an example. So usually, so we have a newsletter in Data Talks yeah. Club. And there is a sponsored slot, right? Sponsored block. Yeah. And usually our sponsors, they give us some text. But then what we do is we look at this text and say, hey, we don't think this way of speaking will appeal to our community. So let's yeah. rewrite it, right? So usually yeah. in marketing department who gives us the copy, right? And mm -hmm. we rewrite it slightly so it's, it doesn't have like these words that marketing people like because they are like a journal for engineers, right? So in this case, we rework the copy and then we include it in the newsletter. But maybe mm -hmm. what we should do is take the original one, take the reworked one, and test which one is better, right? Because right now it's just our gut feeling that yeah. engineers or our community members like really reworked version more than the original one, right? Yeah. But it's just our gut feeling, right? So we did not actually evaluate it. Yeah. So that's a great scenario for an A-B test, yeah. Mm. But in this case, it's people who do this. But if we talk about an LLM, could be like, Okay, there is a copy that a sponsor gives us, and then there is an LLM that rewrites this, right? So there could be an LLM that rewrites this, and there could be also, if you take many different copies that have, like some of those copies are written in style A and some in style B, the LLM would be able to maybe extract 
the style property, right? Because the embeddings in the embedding space, it could be encoded in a certain way that could be useful. Style can be like marketing language or engineering language, right? Or yeah, for instance, yeah. Formal, informal, right? Formal, informal, yeah. Instead of people going through this and saying, okay, this is probably like, okay, maybe this text was written by a data scientist, this text was written by a marketing person, right? So instead of a person going through this, we can ask an LLM to say what kind of style it is, right? Yeah, so we could do this. We could also use it just to classify the style, yes. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of thinking about this, right? So we can have this text as treatment, as outcome, as a confounder, as a covariate, and so on. We could also imagine like a situation, just to give you one more example. We are interested, let's say, in if gender predicts popularity of your post on social media. Gender is unobserved, but you have some description, and we can assume that gender influences the style of your description, right? What do you mean by gender in this case? If text was written by a male or a female? Yeah, by a male or female, like whatever person identifies, right? Yes. So we might be interested, the way hypothesis like this, and you can observe like a phenomenon like this in scientific citations as well, right? So for instance, it seems that from the observational point of view, female researchers are just getting less citations than male researchers. And it seems that this effect is stronger when those female researchers can be identified easily as female researchers. So maybe there's a full name in the abstract, and this full name suggests to another person that this person is female, right? So in the Western culture, if somebody is called um, Stephanie, for instance, and most people will assume that this person is female, right? So we might have might be interested if if gender influences uh, the number of citations or I don't know, popularity of a post on LinkedIn, but it might be the case that the gender is unobserved, but there is style of text, for instance, right, that is influenced by gender. To what extent this is realistic? Well, probably in certain circumstances less, but this is just an example. And then this text style, or like the way that gender manifests itself in the text, is very hard to capture. Now, if we use an LLM, in particular, we pre-train this model on this coral task, then we can assume that it will learn the important characteristics of how gender relates to the style of text, even if gender is unobserved, and then we can do causal reasoning on the system. And LLM in this situation is just like a very fancy feature extractor, right? So it extracts from the text anything that was related to the gender. Mm -hmm. So in this case, there's a variable we do not observe. And uh, typically what we would do without maybe like an LLM, we would build a model for extracting style, right? So we would collect training uh, examples, we would label them, we would train a model, but with an LLM, like I don't know if we just take GPT-4 or whatever, with the instructions, we can use it to extract these things, right? And this is kind of, it's what we do with extract the variable we do not observe. Yes, we, we could try approach like this. Though the problem here is also that this gender is, is unobserved, right? So, so then it would might be complicated to label this in an automated manner. So how do we know if this, uh, the conclusion, the decision, the verdict by an LLM is correct, right? So if we have causal structure, then we can do like a smart architecture that will... Uh, I see. Yeah. 
I don't want to go into too much detail because I think this is very abstract without like visualizations and all this stuff. But does the talk uh, talk about that? Yes, yes. This example is in the talk, and uh, we discuss a, an architecture that is called Cosalbert. So you can find the talk on YouTube. It was a talk given on on PyData Berlin, two thousand twenty three. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And if you decide to watch this talk, I want to give you one more pro tip that uh, in the library that we use, there was a bug in the code and I changed the implementation right before, I think, uh, the presentation. So if you want the code that works properly, you can go to my books repository and look for causal birth and there's implementation that doesn't have this bug. Mm -hmm. So this is a question from Akhil. So can we use causal ML when we cannot use A-B experiments? And if yes, what kind of methods can be leveraged? So I guess like this is quite, the first part of this question is, are there cases when we can't use like A-B tests? So I imagine that there are. And in these cases, like how exactly we approach this situation? Great question. Yes, there are cases where using A-B tests might be difficult for ethical, financial, or whatever technical reasons. If we can use causal machine learning in those cases, the short answer is yes. A longer answer is it really depends to what extent you are able to fulfill causal assumptions. So we didn't discuss this too much, but in order to make a causal model causally unbiased, we need to fulfill certain assumptions regarding which variables are observed. If we have some variables that are unobserved, we might use certain methods for something that is called partial identification or we can perform things like causal sensitivity analysis and so on and we might still get useful information out of those models even if we cannot get a precise uh, point estimate or precise confidence intervals so the short answer is yes the longer answer is in certain cases when you cannot observe certain variables this might be a little bit more difficult. In certain cases, it might be also impossible. But I think a great power of causal thinking, if you understand how those graphical structures relate to the problem of estimation and so on, is that you can very clearly state your problem and understand to what extent this problem is solvable, right? If you just drop a machine learning algorithm on your problem, you will get some answer. But if you don't analyze this problem in advance, you might not really be know or understand fully what this answer is and to what extent it's useful for decision-making. And thinking causally gives a lot of clarity in this regard. And especially, in particular, I'm talking about graphical models or structural causal models that Judea Pearl proposed. I think that's a great tool for clarity. So even for people who are not planning to use causal inference or causal reasoning in their business problems directly today, the idea of understanding this is something that can give them long-term and very, very pronounced benefits. And you, you mentioned one thing here in your answer. You mentioned graphical structures. Mm -hmm. And previous uh, part, when we talked about LLMs, you mentioned an architecture. So I guess in both cases, you mean... Uh, a way of designing a model in such a way that it's clear which thing causes which, right? So then you have this kind of causality chain or whatever. 
And uh, probably we don't have time to go into this, but your book, I assume, covers this in more details, right? Yes, definitely. My book covers this, and your intuition is, is absolutely correct. So graphical model encodes the causal structure between variables. Let me take a step back, and let's very briefly discuss the, the Perlian definition of causality. So the basic Perlian definition of causality is A causes B if B listens to A. Listens to means that if we change something in A, we expect to also see change in B. And we could have a deeper discussion on this, but uh, I'm mm -hmm. sure this is not for this format. Uh, one of the examples you gave yeah. was about temperature, ice cream sales, and number of people who drown, right? Yes. So here, if we, if we adjust temperature, then both these variables will change too. That's what we would expect, yeah. Yeah, on mm -hmm. average. Of course, there are people who are drowning in winter and eating ice cream in winter, right? But mm -hmm. in a statistical sense, we mm -hmm. would expect that it's reasonable that they go also down. Mm -hmm. okay. And then we express it in a graphical form saying like, hey, this is temperature and there's an arrow, there's a temperature and there's an arrow to ice cream sales and there's an arrow to number of drownings. And interesting fact is that those graphical structures, they have certain properties where we can identify causal structure without even looking at the data. So if we know the causal structure itself, but we don't know anything about the data, we can already say something about the system. This is uh, sometimes called uh, non-parametric identification. Based on a structure like this, we can say, we actually don't need to observe this very costly variable and this one as well. It's sufficient that we just observe these three variables. And if we have these three variables, we can build a causally unbiased model. And this is a great tool because some organizations tend to treat the data stuff very seriously. They tend to invest a lot of money in observing as much stuff as possible. And sometimes some of those variables might not be very helpful in answering their most pressing questions. Okay, yeah, thank you. So I guess uh, the to-go reference for everything we discussed today would be your book, then also the talk that you gave at uh, Berlin PyData, mm -hmm. which I missed, I was on the conference. Oh, uh, yeah. so we were very close. We were close, maybe next year we will meet. Can you recommend any other resources for people who want to learn more about the topic? I guess one of the things you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Pearl, like uh, what was his full name? Julia Pearl. And if you're just starting, uh, the, it's called the Book of Why. I don't know if you will be able to see Why. this. Yeah. Yeah. It's book of Why. Yeah. That's a great book for starter. And then if you want to go into more practical stuff, especially in Python, there's my book called Causal Inference and Causal Discovery in Python. It looks like this. It also goes like almost from scratch, right? So I wrote it for people who have like three, five years of experience in machine learning and they want to learn about causality. But the book of why will give you also a lot of uh, very, very nice motivation, beautiful examples from the history of science, how uh, non-causal thinking failed and how causal thinking, thanks to causal thinking, people were able to solve problems. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for staying a bit longer with us and answer uh, this very interesting question from Akhil. And uh, yeah, thanks, Alexander, for being with us today. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today, too, uh, listening in and asking your questions. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to have a conversation with you, Alexei. Well, let's hope we meet next time on the next uh, PyData Berlin. Definitely. Or maybe some other conference. Yeah. yeah.
yeah, well, have a great week and uh, bye everyone. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye.